I'm Amy Meek, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Welcome to Spread the Word, a podcast brought to you by Bayes. Our mission is to interview and share perspectives on gender to our community. You're here with Audrey, Sydney, Ahana, Isha, Liz, Serena, and Erin. Hello, this is our first episode of the new year and new semester. Today, Liz and I got to talk with attorney Amy Meek about her work in the legal field concerning women's rights, gender equity, and more. Special thank you to attorney Amy Meek, and we hope you enjoy. So our first question is, could you please describe some of your legal work in advocacy and gender equity and women's rights? Sure. So I um, uh, worked in the Women's and Reproductive Rights Project at the ACLU of Illinois for five years. And um, in that capacity, um, I worked on a number of issues that relate to gender discrimination and women's rights. Um, So that includes not just uh, reproductive rights, but also issues like pregnancy discrimination. Several of the um, cases uh, and clients that I worked with were uh, um, related to issues of workplace discrimination, either based on someone's pregnancy um, and in some cases just purely based on gender. So, for example, um, I worked uh, on on a case against the Chicago Fire Department, um, which uh, not only had policies that were discriminatory against um, pregnant employees, they also um, had facilities issues that discriminated against anyone who uh, used uh, basically all, all women's, anyone who wanted to use a female restroom um, because their firehouses did not, often did not include uh, shower facilities, locker rooms, um, or restrooms designated for women. Wait, so there was like, so in the Chicago Firehouse Department, there most of, a lot of the time wasn't, like you said, showers, bathrooms for women? Yeah, it's, it's shocking that, you know, in the, in the 21st century that we would be dealing with um, issues that basic around, you know, workplace gender discrimination. Um, but uh, the, you know, the Chicago Fire Department has over 100 fire stations, firehouses, um, you know, that have, some of them are over 100 years old. So they have a lot of, um, a lot of facilities problems. You know, there are firehouses that are, you know, that are small, where it's hard to renovate them, you know, where there are kind of some other basic structural issues and repairs that they're struggling with. But many of them even built through the, like as recently as I want to say the 1960s, um, didn't anticipate that there would be female firefighters. And so were built in this kind of classic uh, or um, I don't know if I should call it classic, but this sort of communal setting that assumed that it would be, you know, a group of 10 or 15 male firefighters all living together. So, you know, one big sleeping area, one big, you know, shower room, um, you know, one restroom with urinals and tower, uh, t- toilet stalls and one um, Uh, one locker room. And then, uh, you know, when they started hiring women as firefighters in the 80s, they had to figure out how they were going to retrofit these facilities. And in a lot of cases, you know, which legitimately, you know, is expensive and challenging to do. Um, But the truth still is that, that, you know, they started hiring women 
as firefighters in the 80s and still to this day, many, many of the firehouses still are in this setup, have not really properly been retrofitted and they haven't sort of taken measures to, um, you know, to always ensure that, that women have appropriate facilities issues. So for example, one client who I represented, um, she was a, a firefighter. And of course, because there's, there's also been a history of discrimination against women in hiring at the Chicago Fire Department, for years, they used um, hiring tests that, for example, used a lot of strength tests and other things that tended to discriminate against women, but not in a way that actually made them better firefighters often. Um, so, uh, you know, many of the women who work at the Chicago Fire Department are more junior. They've been hired more recently. Um, they come into these uh workplaces that, you know, often are kind of overtly hostile to them. Um, and even sort of the pure layout of the firehouse is designed to sort of say, you know, you are an afterthought. We did not think you were going to be here. You're not part of sort of who the Chicago Fire Department thinks of as a, um, you know, as a typical employee. So this firefighter who I'd been representing um, had been on the job for, I think, over a year. And because the firehouse that she had been assigned to you know, was just this sort of communal setup um, where if she wanted to shower, she would, I mean, she would either have to, you know, literally go in and, and shower with the men or she would have to, what, what they told her in kind of an attempt to be welcoming when she first started was just let us know if you need to shower, let us know, we'll lock the door and tell everybody that they have to get out. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, uh, like well-intentioned maybe, but literally, you know, saying to her, like, if you need to shower, everyone else has to leave. You're going to have to in inconvenience everybody else. And, you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that typically the time when firefighters shower um, is either kind of uh, at the beginning or end of their, of their shift. So that's a time when the shifts are changing where there's a lot of people who need to shower or right after a fire is when you're like, that's from a health and safety rationale, that's when you're supposed to shower so that you don't have chemicals um, and things sort of seeping into your into your skin. And so every you know everybody who's worked on that fire needs to shower. And so saying to her, like you're gonna need to, to shut everybody else out is really, um, you know, sends a really pretty clear message. Like, you know, you're inconveniencing everybody else. And so as a result, she um, literally had, had never showered at that firehouse. She, you know, she told me, you know, like, I, I was lucky because every time, you know, there's not that many fires, fortunately, you know, so I was lucky that every time I would had to respond to a fire, it was near the end of the shift. And so I just, I, I carried some like wipes with me so that I could kind of clean up a little bit. And then I would go home and shower there because it was, you know, just such a, clear sort of unequal access to, to facilities. Wow, I, I can't even believe that, honestly, that like these facilities, no matter how old I feel, and I understand that like, you know, it's hard to like renovate things, but like we are in a different age now where like anybody can be anything. And so I don't, the fact that they don't account for that is actually still mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty shocking, and I think um, since then they have been taking more steps to actually try to to um, you know really remedy their their facilities plan, but it is slow going. I think you know something else I think is kind of interesting about those those issues around fire station access and facilities is that now with newer fire fire stations that are being built 
newer firehouses, the model is much more towards creating kind of individual spaces so that people aren't all sleeping in one big open bunk room and people have a little bit more privacy in, you know, kind of individual changing areas, individual bathrooms, individual sleeping areas. And that not only avoids some of these um, issues around trying to figure out, well, okay, how big does the communal bathroom need to be for the men versus for the women? Because how many men do we think we're gonna have versus women? But it also actually creates a much better sleeping and working environment because they're they're there for you know these these long shifts it creates a better environment for everybody because most people don't want to be sleeping in one big open area with everybody that they work with people are snoring people are getting up you know most people actually do value um, some level of individual privacy in their you know in their living areas and so this movement towards making firehouses less discriminatory actually improves conditions for everybody. So then our next question we have for you is, are there any things that you've faced or experienced uniquely as a woman in the legal field and in law school, or do you feel that you had more similar experiences slash opportunities as your male counterparts? You know, I, I definitely, I, I don't think it's the, it's the same. One of the clearest sort of experiences that I've had that I can point to that's not necessarily about um, being a woman, but is about being someone who's um, been pregnant, um, had a baby and, and lactated and, and, and nursed was specifically in the legal profession. Um, I, I took the bar exam um, in Illinois. I, I had twins, um, took the bar exam when my twins were about six months old and emailed, uh, so still, still breastfeeding, but not, you know, we were supplementing, you know, I was, I was still pumping pretty regularly. And I knew that there should be accommodations available for pumping during the bar exam. And just to give a little bit of background about the bar exam, I mean, it's typically a day long exam. So, um, so if you're there for the whole day, you are going to need to pump. Um, you know, usually if you're breastfeeding, you need to um, express breast milk. You need to either nurse or you know, or pump. You know, about every three three to four hours, typically some people it's less, some people might be able to go a little bit longer, but you know, if you don't do that, then um, it becomes really uncomfortable. And in addition to being uncomfortable and painful, you can actually um, have uh, health complications. So you can get mastitis um, or other things, which is like basically like a, a blockage of your milk ducts if you don't, um, if, if you wait too long. So it is a condition that you, you know, need accommodations for. Um, in Illinois, I, I emailed the, the board of bar examiners and said, what are the accommodations for pumping? And they said, um, well, the accommodation is that you can bring your pump in. <laughs> so you know no like no special breaks you can you can bring your pump in and will allow and you can use the pump in one of the restrooms to pump um which also like if you know uh anything about breastfeeding is really like if you wouldn't i mean the, the typical analogy is you know breast milk is food if you wouldn't make a sandwich in the restroom like don't expect people to pump in a restroom and this is actually something that i really regret at the time, you know, I had six months old twins. I was thinking about the bar exam. I was like, fine, if I need to pump in the, in the restroom during, you know, during my lunch break, like that, I'll just, you know, it's just one time I'll just do it. You know, the last thing that I want to do is get into a 
fight with the board of bar examiners about this. So even though I thought it was kind of ridiculous, um, you know, I think sometimes also as like women lawyers, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's just the profession. Nobody's going to help you. Like, you know, you got to just tough it through. So I put up with it. And then literally the next year I was working at the ACLU and we learned of a woman who was due to give birth actually like right before the bar exam. And she was going to, her, her, her baby was going to be a month old. She had asked for accommodations and they gave her the exact same spiel. And to her credit, she was like, no, like this is ridiculous. And, and, you know, also because she was going to have a newborn, she was going to need more breaks. It was going to be more important to her to pump in a clean environment because she was going to have a newborn baby who was going to be like really primarily relying on her breast milk. Um, to survive. So she had written a letter to them. They, she had gotten the same response. And the board, and this is the other thing, the board of artists was, was like, you know, this is the first time no one's ever complained about these accommodations before. And in my head, I was like, you know, now, I mean, I feel like that was also a lesson to me of, I think sometimes I've certainly internalized this sometimes of, you know, oh, well, just tough it out. Don't make waves. You know, it's not a big deal. Just do it. But that was such a lesson to me of that. Not only had I um, really uh, um, not stood up for my own rights, but that that actually does have ripple effects for, for other people. So I was really thrilled that we were able to actually get involved and help write a letter to the board of our examiners to help uh, ensure that not only did she get those accommodations, but that they actually changed their, um, their policies and procedures to be more accommodating of um, you know, anybody who was a nursing parent on the bar exam and, and needed those accommodations. And I think that testing cycle, it ended up being something like five or six um, other nursing parents who were able to, to make use of that. So I think, I mean, I think that is one example um, of where, you know, I mean, that, that's not necessarily about being a woman, but it is about being someone who's lactating, breastfeeding, someone who's been pregnant, and that often these systems are, you know, not set up to accommodate nursing parents. And then, you know, when, when you seek those accommodations, you get more pushback than you might think. Yeah, that's so crazy to me that when you asked for accommodations, they said your accommodation is just to bring in the the pump and to use the restroom that, I mean, it's ridiculous, but also I think I'm not completely surprised by that, that uh, fact in a way, because I feel like that is kind of how our society has run for a really long time. Can I also ask, how many breaks do you get during the bar exam? Um, it's, it's, not that many. Like my recollection is that you have maybe a little bit of time coming in in the morning. And then I think you just have a lunch break. And then basically like the end of the day, I, there might be a quick bathroom break. In but that's the, still not enough time to like fully. Yeah. 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 To fully set up and, yeah. and everything else. So that was a big, you know, a big part of it too. Um, and, and what it meant ultimately for the, the people who got pumping accommodations was that they had to have a separate proctor because they needed more time for, um, yeah. for pumping. But I mean, the, you know, those are all, you know, within sort of the realm of accommodations that you can make for other, um, other medical conditions. Um, it's just that it, it takes more work and it requires, you know, treating this as a, you know, legitimate, a legitimate need. Mm -hmm. I have another question about that. Do you think that the lack of accommodations might have turned away some 
um, working mothers or parents who wanted to take the bar exam, but they might not have been able to because of those restrictions or limitations to what they had to do during the bar exam? You know, I don't know whether it's that, uh, that direct of a barrier. Um, I do think, you know, I, I've certainly heard of situations with pregnancy accommodations and breastfeeding accommodations where, you know, it creates real, you know, real hurdles uh, in terms of people's ability to continue working at their job, um, you know, people being placed on leave, uh, you know, workers being denied light duty accommodations. And in this case, I think it's, I mean, who knows whether it, it made, you know, that big of a difference, but I think denying, um, denying people accommodations for pregnancy or for breastfeeding in some ways is, is not that different from what I was talking about with unequal facilities for women, you know, which, you know, again, I mean, there are ways to get around it, but it sends the signal, you know, that this, this system is not created for you and you're an aberration within that system. And I think, you know, sometimes those, uh, those signals can really uh, add up and, and present a much, much bigger barrier. Thank you. Our next question is, what has been the biggest challenge through your work in the legal area with civil rights and through your work in the legal field? Wow. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I know what the, um, what the biggest challenge is. I can talk about some challenges. I mean, I think there are a couple of big challenges when it comes to gender discrimination and issues relating to women and women's bodies is definitely stigma that it's, um, you know, there's a, there's a ton of stigma around reproductive rights. There's a ton of stigma also even around pregnancy and breastfeeding. You know, people find it difficult to, to talk about abortions, to say the word abortion, to talk about breastfeeding and say the word breast. You know, at one point I remember in negotiating around a, um, a breastfeeding policy, uh, the folks on the other side asked, is there any way that we can change the title of this policy so that it doesn't include the word breast in it? Because we're worried that it's going to give people the giggles. And so like, when you're dealing with sort of like that basic level of uh, stigma and shame um, around just women having bodies um, and women having control of their own bodies. Uh, I think that that's a that's a huge hurdle to to overcome before you even sort of start talking about you know what what rights they have um, with with their bodies. I think you know there's also another issue around uh, a lot of this, you know, pregnancy discrimination, reproductive rights is around sort of stereotypes and images of women as mothers. And, you know, who's a, who's a good mother, you know, this sort of like idea that women should want to have babies, that they should be home with their babies, um, you know, and that that's sort of what, what makes them whole. And, you know, it is, uh, a lot of uh, stereotypes and ideas about what makes somebody a good mother um, or a bad mother and, and shaming around that. Those are huge obstacles to, to get over. Another issue that I haven't really talked a lot about is, you know, the intersections of race and gender. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people are really uncomfortable talking about race. A lot of people don't always think about the ways in which race and gender intersect in these areas. And it's definitely also true that 
in and around you know pregnancy discrimination reproductive rights the women who are often the most policed um, and the most harmed by these types of by discrimination and lack of protections are black women and other women of color so then oh sorry our next question is are there any misconceptions people seem to have about women's rights and gender equality in the legal field well there i mean there are a lot of misconceptions a couple that I can think of. So one is particularly because I did a lot of work in, on pregnancy discrimination. I think that's an area I can talk about. A lot of people do not realize that, um, don't realize that pregnancy discrimination is illegal. You know, it's, I mean, I think people are sort of, well, uh, you know, often kind of at the, at the level of realizing that in most situations you can't you at least can't talk about discriminating against someone because they're a woman or, you know, discriminating against somebody based on their race. But a, a lot of people, I think, you know, don't even realize that pregnancy discrimination is illegal and, you know, still sort of have this idea of like, well, you know, someone who's pregnant should just, they should go home if they can't work. Um, same thing, you know, with somebody who's, who's nursing a baby. I just like had a general question. So when one when the woman goes on maternity leave, do you know how much like the time is that they get off or like do they get paid for that time? Because I've always just had that question. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And the the answer is really it depends a lot on what state you live in and also um, you know, sort of who you're employer is um, and what their other policies are. So nationally, our, our policies around leave for new parents are, um, are just terrible. So in general, nationally, people, people are generally only entitled to um, FMLA, so the Family and Medical Leave Act, which entitles you to um, up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and that's, uh, even that does not apply to every employee in this country. I'm, um, I'm blanking on what the exact requirements are, but usually you typically have to have been working at the employer for, I think, up to for over a year, I want to say, and you typically have to be pretty much um, full time. So even that like really terrible uh, benefit, I mean, it's it's almost not a benefit to be able to at least take unpaid leave um, and, and not lose your job during that time. But even that is not universal. Sometimes pregnancy is covered as a short-term disability. So like time to uh, recover from childbirth. So if your employer has like other types of short-term disability, policies, then typically pregnancy is covered under that. But yeah, there's only, there are actually really only a few states that, that guarantee anything sort of like um, paid leave for new parents. In Illinois, the, probably the, the biggest addition to your rights is that we have a really good Pregnancy Discrimination Act that's in our state laws. And so that basically means that if your employer offers other types of employees paid leave, then they have to offer you kind of similar paid leave for recovering from, um, from childbirth. But even that sort of depends on your employer, you know, giving that to other employees or the, the, other, the other way in which the Illinois law works is that it requires reasonable accommodations. So if the employer can give you leave without it um, being an undue hardship, then they have to do that. Um, but again, that doesn't you know, necessarily uh, entitle you to, to very much in the way of leave. 
Wow. Yeah, um, I, I've always been so sorry. I've just always been so curious about that. Um, I'm also wondering if there's any guidelines on childcare, like after the woman has had her baby, is there any sort of federal guideline or like state policies that help mothers with that in the workplace as well? Yeah, I mean, we don't have nationally subsidized childcare. And, you know, I think even you know, within a state like Illinois, um, you know, there is there some amount of subsidized childcare out there based on income. Um, uh, and then in terms of, you know, being able to take time off, for example, to like take your child to a doctor's appointment or something like that, that again is covered under FMLA. So if, for example, if you've used up uh, your 12 weeks, uh, you know, by, um, you know, being on, on leave uh, to recover from childbirth, then that's not going to be available for you down the line if your um, baby's sick and you need to take them to a doctor's appointment or, or something like that. Again, you know, in, in Illinois, we do have this law that requires reasonable accommodations. It doesn't, yeah, I would say that it doesn't really extend as far as sort of like once you're, once you're actually caring for your baby, it more relates to pregnancy and, and childbirth. Um, but I do think it is part of this, yeah, that, that we in the United States have just, uh, you know, so few uh, protections or policies that encourage or um, protect, like protect workers with any kind of caregiving responsibilities. Uh, okay. Uh, so our next question is, do you have any advice for female students uh, or young women who are interested in pursuing a career in law slash civil rights? So, well, I think one, one piece of advice that I have uh, that I wish that I had taken more is to, is to stand up for yourself um, and, to, and to stand up for, for others um, when you yourself are experiencing um, discrimination or when you see other people, you know, experiencing discrimination or, you know, whose rights are being affected, particularly for women. I think we're often socialized not to stand up for ourselves. And so in some ways it can be easier, I think, to sort of almost think about it as, you know, standing up for myself actually means that it's going to protect other people down the line. But I, I do think that that's important. I think that the the legal profession is is changing to some extent becoming, I think, more friendly to women, but it's still, I think, particularly, you know, as with many professions, there are a lot more women and folks of color at the more junior levels. And then, you know, as you sort of go up into kind of, you know, either people who are tenured law professors, people who are partners um, and law firms, it becomes what much um, whiter and more male. And so I think the other, the other piece of advice that I would give um, particularly young women is to, you know, find other, find other women who are like-minded, who care about the same things that you do, be a team together so that you can, you can support each other's ideas. You can help uh, kind of uplift what other people are saying in meetings or in class. Um, and you can continue to be that network throughout your, throughout your careers. Um, because some of that you know, there is, there is kind of a, you know, old boys network in a lot of professional environments. And one way I think that, um, that women and women starting out can start to push back against that is by, 
you know, is by working together, um, you know, uplifting what other women are saying in meetings so that they're not getting talked over or their ideas aren't being um, kind of co-opted by other people, talking to each other about, you know, negotiating for salary, what people are getting paid, you know, what professional opportunities are out there, and you kind of creating your, your own network because you're in some ways pushing back against a a kind of established network and power structure that is already there and is not uh not always the the friendliest to um to to young women well i think yeah that was like all the questions we had for you today thank you so 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 much we really appreciate it yeah my pleasure thank you take care bye That's the end of our first episode of 2021, and we hope you really enjoyed it. If you want to be on the podcast, there is a Google form on our Instagram, which is at Bayes underscore IMSA. If you want to watch a caption video of the episode, you can also go to our YouTube channel, which is Bayes underscore IMSA in all caps. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to spread the word.